Before we get to our message this morning, I have an exciting announcement to make. As you know, one of our strategic priorities as we look to the future is reaching and raising the next generation of Christ followers. We've been reminding ourselves how very formative those first 18 or 20 years of life are for a spiritual journey. And we've talked about how challenging it is for the church these days to engage young people. And so we have set out to uh, pursue that particular priority by bringing to our staff a pastor of Next Generation Ministries, a strong and seasoned leader who can cast vision, who can build teams, who can mobilize our entire congregation for a cradle-to-college ministry to young people inside and outside the church. It's a central piece of our next uh, our next initiative, and, and your intentions, your financial commitments are helping to make this position possible. When we launched a nationwide search back in the fall, and after many, many months of interviews and resumes and uh, candidates, uh, we are confident that God has led us to the right person to fulfill this very strategic role here at Grace Chapel. Her name is Ruthie Siders. This is her first day on the job, and I'd like you to welcome her as she comes to the platform this morning. Now, Ruthie comes to us for the past six years or so. She has been pastor of uh, uh, student and family ministries uh, at a, a larger church in San Antonio, Texas. But she has New England roots, which she can tell us about in a moment. Uh, she's a graduate of the University of New Hampshire, earned a couple of master's degrees along the way, and most recently, a doctor of ministry degree from Gordon-Conwell Seminary in the field of emerging ministries. She has decades of experience in serving children and students and families. She has a great heart for God, for the local church, for kids, for families, and for New England. So we're glad she's here. Ruthie, just take a moment and introduce yourself, okay? Thanks, Brian. I am really, really excited to be back in New England. Um, I told some people that I've been in exile in Texas on the mission field for a while. Um, however, waving my Red Sox banner high, thank you very much. Some people still need converting, I can see. Um, but yes, my New England roots go deep. Um, the Cushings came over in 1638 and settled in Hingham, and uh, Daniel Cushing's house is still there. And on my father's side, um, I'm currently uh, living with our older daughter in Framingham, and I'm driving by the Framingham Dam, which my great-great-grandfather on my father's side was the first chief architect of Boston, and he designed that. And every time I drive by it, I think, that's so cool. That was Pop's father. So um, I'm very excited to be back in New England, but I'm also thrilled to be called to this position because I have a passion for our young people who are growing up in a postmodern world where everything is just so uncertain and not defined and there's no absolutes and believe what you want to believe. And I believe unashamedly that what we are doing is of eternal significance in the life of the church in investing in our young people. And this isn't just for parents with their biological children. Moses told Israel that they were to impress these commands upon their children. And as I learned to say in Texas, that's an all y'all statement. Okay, so um, 
If you're still breathing, then you still have a role to play as a faith parent in the life of a young person. And you're gonna hear that phrase, faith parents, for a long time to come, and I'm gonna help all of us find ways to be faith parents together as partners, because I'm not coming to save our children and youth ministry. Um, I'm coming to work alongside a great staff team and a great congregation um, to see the next generation flourish. Amen, well thank you, Ruthie, we're so glad you're here. And thank you, thank you for your prayers and your gifts and support that helped to make all of this possible. Well, as we begin our message this morning, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. Now, I always hate it when speakers ask me to do this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Close your eyes for just a moment. Now, what comes to mind when you hear the word home? What image pops into your consciousness when you think of home. You can open your eyes. Chances are some place comes to mind. Maybe the, the home you grew up in or the home you're living in right now, the apartment or dorm room or whatever it might happen to be. Maybe you think of a vacation home that you have returned to year after year after year for a long time. Maybe you don't think of a house at all, but you think of, a, of the campus of, your, of your, the university you attended or a summer camp that was formative in your experience. Um, Maybe a, a favorite spot somewhere in the world that you like to go. Maybe home for you means another country. Uh, but some place probably comes to mind when you think of home. Now close your eyes again for just a moment. Think of that place. Now, who's there? Who are the people with whom you feel at home? You can open your eyes. Chances are you thought of family. Uh, maybe the family you grew up in, the, your present family, maybe your extended family. Or maybe it wasn't family that came to mind first. Maybe you thought of a circle of friends or a, a, a teammates or, or classmates or roommates, maybe a band of brothers and sisters with whom you served somewhere. You get the idea. When we think of home, we think of place and people, a place we feel safe and comfortable and at ease, a people with whom we can be ourselves and even perhaps become ourselves. That's home. A variety of places come to my mind when I think of home, and one of them is a two-story raised ranch home on Tomahawk Drive in Wheaton, Illinois. It's the home of the O'Day family that I married into some 30 years ago. I first stepped into that home as a college student helping to lead a student ministry that met in the basement of that home uh, week after week. And so I got to know the family along the way and pretty quickly fell in love with their oldest daughter. <laughs> Didn't take long for that house to become like a second home to me. Karen's family quickly welcomed me in and made me feel part of the family. Now, once we were married, we moved away and never since have lived closer than a thousand miles to that house. But every summer, soon as school was out and the ministry year was over, we'd pile into the minivan or the maxivan and drive those 16 hours from New York or Chicago to the suburbs of Chicago. Our kids called it the trip to paradise because for 10 days they would hang out with their cousins, sleep in the basement, and be spoiled by Grandma and Papa Joe. We would drive overnight, so we would arrive there early in the morning 
Grandma would meet us at the front door with smiles and hugs, and within moments, we would be seated at the kitchen table eating her famous scrambled eggs and Irish soda bread. And after a little while of visiting, when the all-night drive began to catch up with us, she would look at us across the table and say, your room is all ready for you. And those words, after a long drive and a longer year of ministry, were like music to my ears. It meant I could relax. It meant I could be at ease with myself and with my family. It meant for the next stretch of days, I would be loved and listened to and well-fed. It meant I was home. Now, I hope there's a place or two or three like that in your life, a place you call home, because it's one of the deep longings of the human heart. The very word stirs up yearnings for warmth and acceptance and love and laughter and belonging and learning and all those sorts of things. It's the reason we form friendships, the longing for home. It's the reason we marry and have kids. It's the reason we join clubs and hang out in pubs. We're looking for places where people know our name and are glad that we came. It's the reason we watch HGTV. <laughs> it's not just about the interior design and the real estate deals. It's about carving out a space in the world for the people that you love and long to be with. So like Dorothy in the land of Oz, we spend our days walking this yellow brick road, meeting all kinds of people, having all kinds of adventures, but what we're really trying to do is find our way home. The poet Maya Angelou once said, I long, as does every human being, to be at home wherever I am. We long for home, but, but we don't always find it, do we? Maybe you had a hard time thinking of a place when I asked you to a moment ago. Or maybe the home you thought of no longer exists. Maybe you couldn't quickly think of people with whom you can truly be yourself. Years ago, Billy Joel sang a song called, You Are My Home. The chorus goes, well, I never had a place that I could call my very own. That's all right, my love, because you're my home. It's a sweet song, but it was a long time ago, and for Billy Joel, a lot of lovers ago. <laughs> and if you listen to anything Billy Joel is singing or saying these days, he's still looking for home. And the truth is, we all are. Because even the homes we manage to find for ourselves in this world, the ones we manage to carve out in places and with people, they, they, they don't really last, do they, eventually? People move, houses get sold, families spread out or fall apart, friendships, they, they move on or they let us down. And so C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that this yearning, this longing, can never fully be satisfied in this life. He says it's the desire for our own far-off country, the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. It's the longing for home. And it was that longing that the disciples were feeling as they sat around that table with Jesus on that night before he went to the cross. 
during the season of Lent, we are listening in on that conversation. A dinner party that Jesus had with his closest friends in an upper room around a table as he shared with them his deepest thoughts and feelings and most important truths. It's recorded for us in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17. Now, two weeks ago on our snowed out Sunday, we learned that at the table we learned to love one another as Jesus loves us, even with our flaws and our failures. And last week, on a somewhat less snowy Sunday, we learned to serve each other, not just out of loyalty, but out of love. Now today, we're going to pick up the conversation in John chapter 14. Listen to the opening words. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now this dinner, this holiday gathering, has very quickly become a serious and sober affair as Jesus has begun to speak about betrayal and denial and going away and suffering. The disciples are unsettled by this conversation. They're confused. They're afraid. Someone has compared them to, to children playing happily on the floor until they look up and see mom and dad putting their coats on and going out for the evening. Where are you going, they want to know. Why can't we come? Who's going to take care of us? Those are the kinds of questions the disciples are asking. So Jesus tries to calm their fears. He tell them, tells them not to worry. He's, he's going to come back again. And in the meantime, he's going to prepare a place for them. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now he's talking about heaven, about the life to come. And he's telling us that heaven is like a home. Now, some of us are familiar with the old King James Version, in my father's house are many mansions, and that has stirred up all kinds of imaginative ideas about what might be waiting for us there. It's not about Cape Cod or a raised ranch or a condo overlooking the water. <laughs> what he's telling us is heaven is like a home. First of all, it's a place. It's a real place. <laughs> In the life to come, we are not destined to, to drift through the universe like disembodied spirits. We are not destined to be absorbed into the cosmos like a dewdrop in the shining sea. No, there's a place prepared for us, a place you can see and touch and feel and be and live. And there's also people. Heaven is about people, where, where people come together like members of a family. It's the Father's house, my Father's house, Jesus says. Relationships are key to heaven. He says, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Now think about how that must have sounded to those disciples, fearing uh, that they were going to lose Jesus, that he was leaving. He's going to be gone, but he's going to come back. And while he's gone, he's preparing a place so they can be with him and with each other forever. This party need never, ever end. You know, the same thing is true for us. Remember, Jesus knew that we would be listening in on this conversation these many thousands of years later. He wants to be with us, too, forever. 
He's preparing a place for us, too, in the life to come. There's a lot we don't know about heaven. A lot of goofy, sentimental, and wrong-headed ideas about it. Heaven is certainly not about sitting on clouds and strumming harps. And heaven is not a never-ending worship service. You'll be probably glad, or church service, I should say, you'll be glad to know. I mean, I like church more than the next guy, but I don't want to be in church forever. Now, the one thing I am sure of is that it never snows on Sunday in heaven, okay? (laughs) It always happens, but... So lots we don't know about heaven. The one thing we need to know is that heaven is like a home. Everything that's good and true and beautiful about your experience of home, that's what heaven's going to be like, only more so. More of that. It's a place of love and laughter and learning. It's a place of activity and relationship and growth. A place to belong, a place to become the beings we were meant to be. That sounds wonderful, but it raised a question for the disciples. How do you get there? It was Thomas who dared to ask it in verse 5. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is very interesting. This is not the answer Thomas expected or that any of us would expect. Jesus doesn't say that religion is the way to heaven. He doesn't say being good is the way to heaven. He doesn't say love or sincerity or enlightenment is the way to heaven. All the things we usually associate with getting ourselves to heaven, Jesus doesn't mention them at all. He says, I am the way to heaven. In other words, it's your relationship with me that gains you entrance into heaven, into that home. And you see, that makes perfect sense if heaven is like a home. Imagine driving through the street of a neighborhood and spotting a a beautiful house. There's some kids playing happily in a beautiful front yard and they're grown-ups on the inside looking busy and content. Oh, you can't just walk in the front door and say, hey, I'd like to live here. You can't do that. You need to know someone in that house. You need to have a relationship. Someone needs to invite you in to be part of the family. That's what Karen's mom did for me. She welcomed me. She made me feel at home. She sat me down at the table. She fed me and asked me questions. That's what she did for all of us as the years went by. Other sons-in-law and daughters-in-law and grandchildren. She connected us to one another. She gave us the freedom to dream and talk and become the people that we were meant to be. If you're going to join a family, if you're going to enter a home, you need to know someone. You need to belong to someone. And that's what Jesus does for us. He invites us into his Father's house. Come on in, he says. Take a seat at the table. Share this bread and cup with me. He doesn't ask to see your church membership card. He doesn't ask to see your, your, your charitable deduction report, the money you've given away. He's not interested in your list of good deeds. He says, do you know me? Just sit down. Come to know me. Trust me. Have you ever done that? Have you said yes to Jesus' invitation to sit at the table and be part of his family? It's as simple as that. 
Karen's mom passed away a few years ago, as most of you know. And I remember all of us flying and driving in from all over the country for the funeral. I remember walking into the foyer of the home the way we had done so many times over the years. It was the same foyer. It was the same furniture. It was the same paint on the walls, but it didn't feel the same anymore. It didn't feel like home because Karen's mom, Dorothy, wasn't there. And it was her presence that made that house feel like home to us. You see, that tells us something about heaven. Heaven ultimately is not about whatever accommodations might be waiting for us there. Heaven is heaven because Christ is there and because we are there with him and with each other in rooms and homes and worlds beyond anything we can possibly imagine. And once again, it sounds wonderful, but it raises yet another question. What about now? It's great to know that heaven's out there, but what do we do in the meantime? Why can't we go there now? And who's going to take care of us in the meantime? That's what the disciples wanted to know. Philip puts it this way, verse 8. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. In other words, give us a taste, Lord, of heaven. Give us a glimpse so we know it's really there, so we know what it's going to be like. And Jesus smacks himself on the head and says, Philip, don't you get it? Heaven has been here all along. I've been with you. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What do you think you've been experiencing all this time? He goes on to say that even though he's leaving, he's going to send another member of the family to come and be with them for a while, to care for them and teach them. Verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. This is one of those biblical passages that begins to blow our minds a little bit. It's one of those passages that brings to mind that doctrine we call the triunity of God, or the Trinity. Now, you'll never find that word in the Bible but you'll find the concept all through Scripture, and it shows up here. A, a God who is one and yet three. One being existing eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, it's obviously a mystery. Our mortal minds can't fully grasp it, but it's there in the Scripture in passages like this. To know the Son is to know the Father, to be with the Spirit is to be with the Son. To believe in one is to believe in three. Now, down through the years, we have tried to come up with all kinds of ways of illustrating and explaining this, and none of them work very well. Okay, the God is, the Trinity is not like water, liquid, vapor, ice. God is not like an egg, yolk, shell, white. God is not like three-in-one oil, whatever that is. Okay, just <laughs> throw them all out the window. But we do have to use our imaginations a little bit to try to get a handle on this, and artists have helped us do that down through the years. And one of the most helpful is an icon from the 14th century by a Russian artist named Rublev. Now, it was just one of many, many such 
paintings and icons that have been created down through the years, but this one has, is distinctive in several ways. Just look at it with me for a moment. Notice for one thing that the figures are, are all the same in size and form. Now, typically in representations like this, the, the, the father figure would be larger or more prominent, but not so in this one. In fact, observers still can't be certain which one of the three is the father. It's a picture of equality. Notice, secondly, that they're seated in a circle. Now, typically, we think of Trinity in terms of a triangle, which can be helpful, one, three sides, but those sides are distinct and sharp and angular. In, in this image, the figures are in the form of a circle. There's movement from one to the other to the other. They're, they're leaning into one another. There's engagement with one another. It's a picture of community. And then notice, thirdly, that they're gathered around a table, around a meal. It's a picture of intimacy, of three persons who are perfectly comfortable with one another, fully themselves with one another, and who together form a home with one another. You see, that's the mystery and the beauty of the Godhead, that God is one and yet three, that God exists in eternal community, God is one, but God is not alone. Now, sometimes when adults are trying to explain this concept to, or not this concept, but sometimes we're trying to explain to children why, why God created humankind, we say things like, well, God was lonely and needed somebody to love. It sounds sweet, but it's wrong. God's not lonely, never was and never will be. He exists forever in perfect community. God doesn't need somebody to love. Father, Son, and Spirit live together in a circle of perfect love. But that's the amazing part about it. God didn't need to make us, but He did. God doesn't need to love us, but He does. This God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are enjoying perfect eternal community with one another, take the risk of opening up the circle and inviting people like us in to be a part of that community, to find a home there. See, notice back at the icon one more time. There's space at the table in the foreground. That space in the front is a little bit wider than the other spaces. You know who that space is for? Us, you. Rublev has situated these three figures in such a way that the viewer is invited into the picture to come to the table, as it were, and sit down and enjoy this circle of love, this community, this home. This is not just an artist's fanciful imagination. This is exactly what Jesus is telling his disciples and us that night. Look at what he says in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus was leaving them physically, but he would be with them spiritually and personally, caring for them, loving them, guiding them, teaching them through the Holy Spirit. And then look at verse 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. We don't have to wait for heaven to be at home with God or with each other. Heaven has come to us. 
in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son, made real by God the Holy Spirit. We can be at home at this in this life with God and with each other. Through Jesus, through a relationship with Jesus, who is himself the, the, the way home, the true home, and the only home where life goes on forever and never disappoints. And so that leads us to our lesson for this week. At the table, we find our true home with God and with each other. At the table, we find our way home to God and each other. Now, three simple takeaways I have for you as we think about this particular truth and how we might respond for it, to it. Three possible action steps. One or all three may apply to you. The first, come to the table. Come to the table. That night, Jesus invited his disciples to enter into an eternal relationship with him by participating in the meal by partaking of that bread and cup, by professing their faith in him. And he makes that same invitation to us today these thousands of years later. Just come to the table. Accept my invitation. My life and death and resurrection. Believe in it. Come to the table. Take your seat and be part of the family. Have you ever done that? Have you accepted that invitation? I'm remembering those words Karen's mom used to speak to us when we arrived at the house. Welcome home. Your, your room's all ready for you. And I kind of imagine that someday, I like to imagine that someday when, when I or we arrive at the gate of heaven, that the Lord will say to us, welcome home, Brian. Your room is all ready for you. Is there a room ready for you in heaven? Is there a room with your name on it? It's not about being good or trying harder or going to church or having your baptism certificate. It's about a relationship with Christ, taking a seat at the table. If you've never done that, you can do that today even in just a moment as we share communion together. A simple way of saying yes to that invitation, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time. Robert Frost once said that home is the place that when you go there, they have to take you in. And you know what? Heaven is like that too. doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how long you've been away, how far you've wandered. When you come to this table, they have to take you in because they promised they would if you come by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. So maybe that's your first step. Come to the table. Find your way home. The second possibility, the second step, is to make yourself at home. If you've come to this table, if you said yes to Christ and become part of the family, then settle down, man. Get to know the people who are members of the family. You don't have to wait for heaven. Church is the family of God. We are the community of faith. Ruthie spoke about it a few moments ago. It's part of her vision that we would see ourselves as a spiritual family. Remember Rublev's icon. All three of the members of the Godhead leaning towards one another, sharing together, imparting a meal, serving each other. That's what he has in mind for us as a community of faith. I actually preached on this concept and this very icon about 10 years ago. Anybody remember? Uh, there we go. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Memorable sermon. Yes. It was the year, it was 2005. It was the year we launched Life Communities here at Grace Chapel. 
It was the year we decided we were going to enter into real relationships with each other. We were going to do life and do faith together in groups of people. And for 10 years, hundreds, thousands of us have been sharing life and faith together around tables in homes and classrooms and breakout rooms and all kinds of places all over the city. If you haven't done that yet, make yourself at home. It's probably not going to happen in an hour on Sunday morning with hundreds of people around you. It's just not. You've got to find a smaller group of folks. It's going to happen in a home or a classroom somewhere. So if you're not yet part of a life community or a table group for this series, you can still do that. It's not too late. If you are part of one of those groups, lean into it for the next five or six weeks. Show up every time. Be honest. Share your thoughts. Listen. Care for each other. Make yourself at home. I can tell you in all sincerity, when I close my eyes and think of places that I call home, one of them is the church, and it's this church. It's this place. It's you people. When I first wandered in here years ago, I, I wondered if it would ever feel like home. I can tell you it does. It feels like home to me. And there's a home for you in the church. There's a home for you at Grace, whether it's Lexington or Wilmington or Watertown or East Lexington. There's a home for you here. Make yourself at home. The third takeaway is to bring someone with you. If you have found your way home and you're part of the family, remember there's people out there who are still looking for home a place to love and belong. I think we'd all agree, one of the saddest sights to see is a homeless person. We, we, we see them all the time, pushing their worldly belongings around in a shopping cart, sleeping in a doorway or under a bridge, trying to carve a space for themselves with cardboard and newspaper in this world. It's an awful thing to be homeless, to be without a place and without people. But as awful as it is to be homeless physically, it is more frightening to be homeless spiritually, to be adrift in the world, to be lost in the cosmos, to be alone in the universe. There are people lost and alone and homeless all around us all the time. Remember that table, that, that, that circle of love, there's room at the table. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms. He wants a full house. He wants as many people as possible to come home. And that's what we're about here at Grace Chapel, opening up places for people to come home, opening up seats for people to find their place in the family of God. So who might you bring with you? Who might you invite as we make our way towards Easter? Come to the table. Make yourself at home. Bring someone with you. Let's think on those things as we spend a few moments at the table with Jesus and each other. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this vivid description of a remarkable evening. Thank you for this remarkable image presented by an artist. Thank you for the experience that many of us have had, have had of being at home with you and your people. Pray now in these next moments we might enjoy that experience. Pray for those who might be coming for the first time. Pray for all of us, Lord, that you would meet us here in these moments. Make them meaningful, we pray. Show us our next steps as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.